hard ourselves when she's rushing back to her one true love. And that's where we find ourselves with this scene. Prince Hans. Anna! Oh. Hans, you have to kiss me. What? Now. Oh, now. Slow down. Oh. We'll give you two some privacy. <laughs> what happened out there? Uh, it struck me with her powers. You said she'd never hurt you. I was wrong. Oh. Anna. <laughs> she froze my heart, and only an act of true love can save me. A true love's kiss. Here it comes. If only there was someone out there. Heartbroken. You said you did. As 13th in line in my own kingdom, I didn't stand a chance. I knew I'd have to marry into the throne somewhere. What, what are you talking about? As heir, Elsa was preferable, of course, but no one was getting anywhere with her. But you, Hans. you were so desperate for love, you were willing to marry me just like that. I figured after we'd married, I'd have to stage a little accident for Elsa. Hans, oh, no, stop. But then she doomed herself, and you were dumb enough to go after her. Please. <laughs> All that's left now is to kill Elsa and bring back Summer. You're no match for Elsa. No, you're no match for Elsa. I, on the other hand, am the hero who was going to save Arendelle from destruction. You won't get away with this. Oh, I already have. Ha! When I... When I first saw that, I was in my college dorm, I was with a bunch of my college football teammates, and we were screaming at the TV, like, what? You gotta be kidding me! You can't do that? I don't know! Like, we were freaking out. Exactly, like, how could this happen? That was greatest plot twist in movie history. Also, fun little side note, if you didn't catch this already, here's a little bit of uh, movie trivia for you. Elsa puts on gloves to cover her true nature. Hans removes his gloves to reveal his true nature. I just found that out like the last time I watched it, I don't know, like a month ago. And I was like, what? All over again. But it's this great plot twist. I mean, it's, it's a really bad plot twist in the sense of like everything feels hopeless in that moment, right? It's this bad plot twist because everything is broken and there's no, like, how are they going to fix this? Anna's going to die. Elsa's going to die. Hans is going to rule the kingdom. Like, that's not fun. The bad guys are going to win. Now, yes, obviously there's a, Dis a Disney happy ending at the end. But in that moment, it's that bad plot twist where you think the world is broken and th what is wrong is going to win. And that's a pretty familiar feeling right like that's that's true of the world we live in right now where it feels broken it feels wrong some things aren't right here and it's because of this idea of of sin it's because of sin and we've talked about sin a lot in this space before of of sin in its most basic sense is just 
going against what God has planned for you, going against what God intends for you. It's this idea where we're taking ourselves and making ourselves out to be God. Sin is responsible for so many of the world's brokenness and hopelessness that we see and experience. I, I, it brings death. Death in the literal sense, but also to relationships, to joy, to life as it should be. I've seen it in my own life. When I was in high school, I was talking to a friend who was a girl, and it was, I don't know, 9 o'clock, not super late, but late enough that my dad came in the room and was like, you need to go to bed, you need to hang up the phone right now, nope, no buts and ifs, don't pass go, right now, do it. And so I did it, but I was not happy about it, and I was angry, and I was in an angry season of life, but I lashed out in like really petty ways. I, I, I changed his contact in my phone. I, ha I used to have him, or I have him now, but used to have it like dad and then his name, Bob Machat. And I was like, nope, you're not going to be identified as a dad. That's coming off your contact. Uh, and then I sent like, you know, the I hate my dad. He's the worst. How could he do like just that angry text, you know? And I hit send and, and whatever, went to bed and I come downstairs the next morning and I'm still angry, but I've, you know, had some time to calm down. And I say, good morning, and something's off. I'm like, why are you mad at me? I'm mad at you. Why are you being, giving me the cold shoulder? And then I go to look at my phone and find out I sent him the text. And it was this moment of just like, oh, I just ruined that relationship. Out of my anger, out of my sin, I damaged that relationship. I brought hurt and pain to a, a relationship because of my sin. Sin can be something we choose to do. It can also be something we don't do, and it can sometimes be an accident. But sin always brings damage. Damage to us, damage to those around us, damage to this world. And last week, we saw how sin created death and damage, both spiritually but also physically. That Jesus was betrayed by those who used to love him and follow him. Some strangers, yes, but also by Judas, one of his closest followers and friends. He was betrayed, and Judas brought the authorities to arrest him. He was arrested and put up on trial over fake charges that they invented to, to get him in trouble. And eventually, they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. If you, if you aren't aware, crucify, if you are crucifying someone or if you're crucified, it's this ancient execution that was incredibly gruesome, incredibly painful. It happened on a cross that kind of looked like this, which is why we have this up here is, Jesus died on one of these for you. But this idea where your, your hands are pierced, well, more like your wrists, but you're pierced with nails as you're hung to this cross. Your feet are pierced, and I don't quite know all the medical um, reasons behind it, but essentially your body suffocates over hours, sometimes days. And it's just this incredibly torturous way to die. And that comes actually after Jesus has already been beaten within, the inch of it, within an inch of his life. 
And so he's put up on a cross, beaten, spit on, mocked, but they're yelling, crucify him. This is where we're going to pick up our story of Jesus' last night. In John chapter 19, it's uh, page 905 in your Bibles. And and before we jump in, we unfortunately just don't have the time to unpack all of what's happening in John chapter 19. But I want to encourage you, read it on your own. Before you go to bed, just take time. It'll take you five minutes. Read this on your own. Or on the Thursday before Easter, we have what we call a Monday service here where we talk about what did Jesus go through. Come and experience that. See what this is like because it's worth knowing. But I want to pull out some highlights of, of what did Jesus go through as, uh, as he was being crucified. So in John chapter 19, the first half of it is the, the trial that we talked about last week where this guy named Pontius Pilate who was the, kind of the governor of, the Roman governor of that area at the time, was like, yeah, I'm going to wash my hands of this. You take him and do with him what you want. So we'll start reading in verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. What happened to Jesus was horrifying. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't cause pain or harm to anyone. He didn't deserve death. But his message intimidated the authorities so much that they were so eager to kill him. And so they did. And as a result, he was beaten. He was mocked and humiliated by soldiers and crowds. As he was hanging on the cross, the the soldiers are actually gambling. We're playing games for his clothes. Can you imagine being exposed for everyone to see and somebody's playing games for your clothes in front of you? Like how humiliating that would be? He was forced to carry his own execution device. He had to carry his own cross out of the city. Just this constant like, this is what I'm going to die on. This is what I'm going to die on. And it's heavy. This culminated in, in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on on, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus suffered and so did his friends. They knew Jesus as someone who healed the broken, set free those in bondage, redeemed what was lost, but now he was being killed and there wasn't anything anyone could do about it. Death is the final chapter in every human life. And everyone in that city saw Jesus take his last breath that day. 
the story seemed to be over. Jesus had lost. Sin and death had won. But while everyone saw death, Jesus saw a plot twist that no one else predicted. Obviously, this isn't where the story ends. So we're going to keep reading in John chapter 20. Now, this is just days after Jesus had this public execution. Mary, one of his closest followers and disciples, went to visit his tomb. And she didn't come expecting a new chapter She actually came to mourn what had ended. She expected to find Jesus' body there. She was there to mourn what she just lost. She lost her friend, her hope, her identity. So let's pick up chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, the light bulb quicks for her. Jesus, you're, you're alive? She thought that they had taken the body away. They found out the body was missing, and that wasn't good news initially. That was... It seemed like one more tragic, sick plot twist in this terrible story. They didn't have this idea of like, maybe he's alive, because that's impossible, right? The Easter season is a time we celebrate the real plot twist we now know that was waiting for them. That Jesus is alive. And he is alive today. Death is. And sin didn't actually have the last word. They didn't, they didn't win. But this plot, and this plot twist isn't just available for Jesus' followers back then. It's, it's available for us today. Jesus is still alive, still defeating sin and death today. In the midst of death, grief, and hopelessness, Jesus had and has the power to change the story. When sin leads to destruction and brokenness, it doesn't always seem like there is hope or or a chance for redemption. But with Jesus, there's always one more plot twist in the works. He was alive and it changed everything about sin and death. That first Easter Sunday is proof that when sin brings death, Jesus brings life. This is talked about also in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, telling them about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus, that he came and lived here on this earth, that he lived with us and that he died on the cross. 
He died to take the death that sin brought upon himself. And that he died, but that's not where it stopped. He rose again. And because of his resurrection, because he lives now, he brings life to all. Just as sin brought death, now Jesus brings life. The Easter story is not about everything turning out exactly the way we hope or expect or want it to, but, it, but it's realizing that broken things, they don't have to stay broken. They're not doomed to stay broken forever. You are not doomed to stay broken. Our relationship with God doesn't have to stay broken. This world doesn't have to stay broken. Because of Jesus, there is now hope and life when there used to only be death and hopelessness. So what does this look like? How can we actually bring this into our reality today? How do we, how do we engage with this? What does this look like? I want to give you three things to think about this week. Think about them tonight before you go to bed. Think about them tomorrow before you go to school or not go to school if you don't have school tomorrow. Think about them this week as you go, as you're encountering life and the brokenness and the hurt and the sin in this world, both in your life and in others. The first thing I want you to think about is grieve what's broken. Unfortunately, like Easter is, is kind of a season of toxic positivity positivity, right? Like everything is okay. We can celebrate Jesus. Everything's good. But that kind of ignores the pain that sin has brought. It, it overlooks the reality of the brokenness of this world. And we now, hear me, we certainly have reasons to celebrate. We certainly have reason for hope. But it doesn't erase all the pain that sin has brought. It's good to grieve our pain when we lose something or someone important to us. When we see others hurting, it's good to grieve. It's good to feel those feelings. Jesus didn't Say, hey, you have to pretend to be happy even when life hurts. It's good to grieve our sin. When we know that we messed up, when we hurt others, I had to grieve what I did to my dad. I had to repent, to confess, to ask for forgiveness, to to reconcile that. And that's what our grief in those from our sin should push us to do. It should push us to make things right. But when we're grieving, we don't want to just sit there. We want to turn and ask God to fix what, or to restore what has been broken. Take those things to Jesus and ask him to bring new life into those things 
into, into your world, into your life. And the last one, think about how you can join God in restoring what is broken. Now, I want to be clear on this. Only Jesus can conquer death and sin. Only Jesus can bring life. Only Jesus can restore you. But here's the awesome thing about this, is he invites you to be a part of that process. So ask him, how can I be a part of, how can I join you in restoring what is broken? How can you, when you've messed up, to take the right actions to make things right? How can you notice someone in pain around you and reach out in love? How can you see what's wrong with this world and become a part of the solution? Easter Sunday isn't about wishful thinking or, or hoping or, or just thinking about the good things in life. It's not about ignoring what's wrong. It's about trusting that Jesus can take what is beyond repair or beyond hope and make it new. Because when sin brings death, Jesus brings life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. I can't even think about the pain that you must have endured on the cross, what that looked like, how that felt for you. And yet you chose to do it for me. You moved towards me when I turned away from you. You are making things right. You bring life in the face of my sin. You bring life to all of us, Jesus. We love you. In your name, amen. All right, go to small groups. Also, 